we come to the book of Kings, and in these two sessions we'll be in 1 Kings in the first hour and then 2 Kings in the second hour. And if, if we think of the whole book of Kings, uh, what we have in the first two chapters of 1 Kings is uh, the, the, the end of David's life and David's charge to Solomon. And then from 1 Kings 3 through 11, you have Solomon's reign. And, and a lot of that material is taken up with Solomon's stature as a kind of new Adam and then his building of the temple, which is significant and, and even uh, programmatic for what we see going into the New Testament where the Messiah, the son of David, is a temple builder. That's, that's what Jesus does in the New Testament. He builds his temple. And then from 1 Kings 12 through 2 Kings 17, we have the accounts of the divided kingdom. So in 1 Kings 12, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, answers the people foolishly. The nation is divided, divided into north and south. And then the account of the kings, we track through those in these chapters, 1 Kings 12 through 2 Kings 17. And in 2 Kings 17, the northern kingdom is exiled. They're driven out of the land. And then in 2 Kings 18 through 25, we, we're, we're left with only Judah in the southern kingdom, and then in 2 Kings 25, they too are exiled. So that's sort of a, a wide-angled summary of the whole books, First and Second Kings. If we think about where this fits in the, the outworking of the Old Testament story, what we have is God puts Adam in the garden in Genesis 1 to rule over the earth and subdue it, and Adam rebels and is expelled from the garden. And then uh, <clears throat> eventually we arrive at Abraham and God gives these blessings to Abraham that are going to counter the curses that God pronounced on the serpent and the woman and on Adam. The blessings of Abraham match those curses point for point. And then Abraham's descendants grow into a great nation. God brings them out of Egypt and he puts them in the promised land, and in the land of promise, they're in almost like a new Eden, and their role, just as Adam's responsibility, is to rule over the earth and subdue it and bring, bring all the land into subjection to Yahweh. And the idea is that by Israel living out the law and keeping the law and conquering the nations around them, the glory of Yahweh is going to cover the dry lands as the waters cover the sea. And, and as we, as, we, as we enter into the land with Israel in Joshua, we descend into the book of Judges, and then the, the books of First and Second Samuel tell us about how Israel first got a king in Saul, and then he was replaced by the righteous David. And then First and Second Kings tell us about David's descendants. And what we see is that, they, like Adam, they all failed. David failed with Bathsheba. Saul failed in, in not pursuing God's purposes. Solomon failed with his many wives, and then all of, his, all of Solomon's sons also failed, as did the kings of the north. And, and uh, at the end of 2 Kings, both Israel and Judah are exiled. So the, the, the pattern at the beginning of Genesis is that Adam is in the garden, and then he sins, and he's exiled. And then that pattern is worked out on a national scale in the nation as they enter into the land, they, they receive kings, and then, like Adam, they sin, and eventually they're exiled. And, and this is really 
the outworking of exactly what Moses said would happen in, in Deuteronomy. And, and just as in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we saw that there would be this long sequence of, of, um, of disciplinary actions from the Lord on Israel that would ultimately end in exile. That's exactly what we see in the book First and Second Kings. In some ways, though, uh, in, in First Kings, under Solomon, it's as though Israel rises to its highest point and then comes crashing down. So let, let's, let's jump into First Kings and, and track through this narrative. Uh, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating story in First Kings, uh, how Solomon is identified as David's uh, heir who will reign after him on the throne, but, but we're not going to take time to read through that and look at all of those uh, interesting events. Uh, what, what I do want to observe, though, is that Solomon has this rival, uh, this, this other descendant of David named Adonijah, who sets himself up as king. And Solomon, he, he's, he's uh, recognized as the, the king who will succeed David, and, he, and he's recognized by David himself, and then by um, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and then the royal mother Bathsheba. And then the opponents of Solomon, Adonijah and his crew, they're all put to death. And, um, and so Solomon establishes his reign first by defeating his enemies. And, and let's look together at, at 1 Kings chapter 2 when we, when we see here what David says to Solomon as he passes the kingdom on to him here in 1 Kings chapter 2. When David's time to, draw, to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of Yahweh your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. In saying these words to Solomon, David is really reiterating the words of Deuteronomy 17. This is Solomon's responsibility as king in Israel. He is to know the law of Yahweh given through the servant of Yahweh, Moses. David calls Solomon to do this in the middle of verse 3, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. So David clearly communicates to Solomon, if you want to prosper, the way to prosper is by keeping the law of the Lord. Verse 4, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. What David seems to do there is interpret the promises of God to him in 2 Samuel 7 as being conditional conditioned upon David's sons uh, keeping the law of Moses. So it's not just a, a given that David's heirs are going to reign forever. David here sees that if they want to continue on his throne, they must keep the law of Moses. And then David charges uh, Solomon to do justice against Joab and to, to do kindness to Barzillai the Gittite and Gileadite and to do justice against Shimei, the one who had cursed him when he was, when he was driven out of Jerusalem uh, 
at Absalom's rebellion. So David, David communicates this charge to Solomon, gives him some final orders, and then David dies in, in 1 Kings 2.10. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. In verse 12, so Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Well, it's going to be established in the rest of chapter 2 as Solomon uh, purges his enemies. And I just want to pass quickly over that narrative and, and say that Solomon puts Adonijah to death and then Solomon puts those who had aligned themselves with Adonijah as enemies of God and of God's anointed king, Solomon. He puts them all to death. And, and there's a sense, I think, in which uh, in, in doing this, it is as though Solomon is... Is, is achieving victory over the seed of the serpent who are challenging his kingdom. So it's almost like David is uh, working and keeping the garden. He is, he is uh, protecting and serving the land by defeating his enemies in this way and, and by putting these, these rivals to his throne to death. And then in chapter 3, I think what we have is... is a historical account that presents the complexities of Solomon. So, in other words, I think that, that in some ways the author of Kings is presenting us with the facts of Solomon's reign, and he's doing this in such a way that those who know what the law commands concerning the king will see that there are, there are ways that Solomon is openly and explicitly breaking the law. And then there are ways in which Solomon is fulfilling the law and, and standing as a kind of new Adam in a new Eden and even doing what is right and, and, and exterminating the seed of the serpent. So it, it's, it's complex. It's like there are things that we would affirm and things that we would want to uh, reject in, in Solomon. And I think that, that this complexity is, is ultimately going to be problematic and, and ultimately Though I think Solomon is a genuine believer, um, and, and I think that's attested to by the fact that, um, that we have books like Ecclesiastes in the Bible where he seems, I, I would take Solomon to be the author of Ecclesiastes, and he seems to uh, acknowledge the error of his ways, and he seems to, to say that, that, um, that the things that he did were, were, were wicked and that, and that what's right for man to do is, is to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And, and I would even say that Solomon is commended in the New Testament when Jesus says something like, one greater than Solomon is here. Solomon seems to be something like a paradigmatic type of what the Messiah, the son of David, is going to be like. Those things seem to be affirmed, but at the same time, Solomon's disobedience and in 1 Kings 11 is idolatry, are going to, the, the, though, though ultimately I think he's a believer and he's going to be forgiven, these, these things are going to create consequences that are going to be negative for the whole nation. And I think that, uh, that this is something like the complexity of, that, we, that we experience as human beings. There, there are ways in which true believers can so bring, bring horrible consequences upon themselves that uh, that, that their testimony and their ministries are severely harmed, e even though they are, they're genuine believers. I think this tragically happens. And so Solomon is one of these, one of these complex individuals. 
Things about him we would want to affirm, things about him we would want to uh, reject. We, we see in chapter 3, for instance, in verse 1, that Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. This is not a negative thing for, I'm sorry, this is not a positive thing for Solomon to enter into this marriage alliance with with Pharaoh. Uh, this, this, this is not what um, the king ought to do. Well, nevertheless, we read in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So again, it's kind of like he, he, he loves the Lord, but he sacrifices and made, makes these offerings at the high places, and this is not a, not a positive thing. Um, he, he goes to Gibeon. Now, there's, there's some degree of, of uh, uncertainty here, a certain degree of uncertainty, because on the one hand, the, the temple has not been built yet. So, so the one place that the Lord has chosen to set his name to which Israel is to go up and sacrifice there, that hasn't been established yet. And, and, and with this, it seems that in this narrative, there's this high place in Gibeon where there's the, the, um, the great altar, and then the Ark of the Covenant is back in Jerusalem. So if you look, for instance, at um, uh, 1, Corinthians, um, um, 1 Kings sorry, chapter 3, here Gibe Solomon goes to the great high place in Gibeon, and then the Lord appears to him in verse 5, and then... Uh, when Solomon returns in verse 15, he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. So he seems to be at this great high place at Gibeon, and then the Ark is back in Jerusalem. And so it seems that there's almost a divided situation in Israel where the, the, the altar is up in Gibeon and then the Ark is in Jerusalem. And so the Lord appears to Solomon in Gibeon, and, and you remember the story. Uh, the Lord invites Solomon to make a request, and he, he asks for an understanding mind to govern the people, to be able to discern between good and evil. And the Lord is pleased with this request, and so he gives him in addition to a discerning mind. He, he says in uh, verse 13, I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And so Solomon's... Um, Solomon is given the gift of wisdom, and he's also given wisdom and uh, riches and, and honor. And then the narrative goes on, and we get an example of Solomon's wisdom in the form of this, this story about these two prostitutes that you're probably familiar with. Uh, so I'm going to pass right over that, and I want to go now to 1 Kings chapter 4, where it seems, beginning in verse 20, that we get a depiction of Solomon as one who is realizing what has been promised. It's as though Solomon is indeed the king for which Israel has been hoping. So let's pick this narrative up in 1 Kings 4. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. That's a great thing. This is, this is what God promised to Abraham, that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand by the seashore. They ate and drank and were happy. Verse 21, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates 
to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So Israel has evidently subdued the nations round about and they're now ruling over these, these other nations. And then it goes into Solomon's wealth and his provision. And then look at verse 24. For he had dominion. That's a significant word. That's what Adam was to exercise. Adam was to have dominion over all the land. And now Solomon is described as having dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tifsah to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. So it looks great. It looks like Israel is accomplishing the purpose for which God has put them in the land. Verse 25, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. I think that that description, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, is a significant description of what it, what it looks like to, to live in this sort of blessed state under the righteous rule of Israel's Messiah. And that description, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, is going to be used uh, throughout the rest of the Old Testament to point to this future hope of Israel, a day when every man will again dwell under his vine and under his fig tree. And, and I think that that language is code word, it's code language, those are code words for, for this state of messianic blessedness, this, this time when the, the son of David will rule righteously and all the nations will be subjected to him and, and Israel will be prosperous and the land will give its fruit and, and everything will be going right. And then, and then, right after this, there's a statement that looks negative. And, and so before I read the next verse in, in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 26, let me remind you what Deuteronomy 17 says in verse 16 about the king, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to, to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So we've just seen this picture in 1 Kings 4, verse 24, of Solomon having dominion over all the land west of the Euphrates. And then the next verse, in verse 26, so verses 24 and 25, just to be clear, look like Solomon being portrayed as this hope for ideal ruler this king who has finally arisen in Israel and he's helping Israel to achieve its destiny, God's purpose for them, subduing all the lands round about to bring everything into subjection to the law of Yahweh so that God's glory will cover the dry lands as the waters cover the sea. And then there's a statement that for those who have ears to hear, for those who know the law of Moses and know the law of the king, they will know from this statement not everything's rosy. Not everything's going as it should. So verse 26, Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And then, and, and, and so I think this is, this statement is put here as a kind of observation 
that Solomon is not obeying on every front. And, and I think that the, the author of Kings is just showing us the facts. And he's showing us the facts in such a way that in order to interpret these facts, you have to know Deuteronomy. In order to interpret the good stuff and to know what, what Solomon is doing right, you have to know Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then in order to know, in, in order to interpret the ways that Solomon is failing, in per particular, you have to know Deuteronomy 17. And so the author, he doesn't come right out and say Solomon was righteous and he was wicked. He was, he was doing good that he ought to have been doing and he was doing wickedness that he shouldn't have been doing. He doesn't come right out and say that. He just shows us what Solomon was doing and, and, and sort of puts the ambiguity in our, la in our laps. And, and the narrative goes on and then we read in verse 29 of 1 Kings 4, and Solomon gave wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of man, mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite and Heman and Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So the Lord has blessed Solomon with wisdom. Then verse 32 I think this is a statement that we're meant to, to, to read and understand that, that the books like Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, they're, they're sourced here in 1 Kings 4.22. He also spoke 3,000 Proverbs and his songs were 1,005. I think we see instances of those in the canon, Song of Songs, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And then verse 33 presents Solomon as a kind of new Adam. You'll remember that Adam was in the garden to work it and keep it, and one of the things that Adam was doing was naming the animals that God had made and brought to him. And now we see in 1 Kings 4.33 that Solomon spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So Solomon is acting like a new Adam, ruling over the creation, exercising dominion over the lands, and the peoples of all nations are making their way to Jerusalem to hear his wisdom. And then in, in chapter 5, Solomon begins to prepare the temple. And it, it is as though Solomon is a, has achieved this Adamic dominion and now he wants to build this temple and he understands that from this temple Yahweh's glory is going to radiate out and cover all the lands. And so we get this extensive narrative in 1 Kings 5 through 8 of the building of the temple and the bringing of the ark in. And then in chapter 8 of 1 Kings we have a very significant narrative where Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple. And Solomon's prayer here is, is going to be like the, the blessings and the covenant, uh, the blessings and cursings of the covenant back in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 through 32. Solomon's prayer is going to be portentous of the, the rest, the future of the history of Israel. So, so Solomon is going to speak here in 1 Kings 8 as one who is informed by Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and it's almost as though he knows what's going to happen before it comes to pass. So they, they bring the ark in, and we read in 1 Kings chapter 
8, verse 9, there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And then the next verse recalls the building of the tabernacle. And I think that this is, this is legitimizing the temple in Jerusalem that Solomon built. The Lord is legitimizing it. Verse 10, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. Same thing that happened in Exodus 40 with the tabernacle. Happens again with the temple. The Lord takes up residence among His people. Then Solomon blesses the Lord, and he begins to pray. And the first thing he does is he praises God for uh, his, his kindness and mercy to Israel and for the promises that He's made to David. And, and it's interesting, in this narrative, Solomon is the king, and he is standing between the Lord, who's just taken up residence in the temple, and the rest of the people. And he's, and he's blessing uh, the Lord and praising the Lord and praying to the Lord on behalf of the people. And, and earlier in 1 Kings, we read that, he, that, he's, that he's made a, 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 just a, a massive number of, of sacrifices of sheep and oxen, so many that in verse 5 they cannot be counted or numbered. It's almost as though Solomon stands as both king and priest of Israel there between the Lord who's just taken up residence in the, in the temple and um, the people. And then from what he says here, he sounds like a prophet. It's as though he prophesies the future of the history of Israel. And so, uh, having blessed the Lord, um, he begins to, to call on the Lord to be merciful to the people. And then what he does, beginning in verse 31, is he names seven different situations in which he is beseeching the Lord to hear the prayers that the people of Israel are going to pray toward this place, meaning the temple. And, and, and this passage is very significant for understanding the Old Testament because we see in this passage that the temple is central to Israel's religious life. And the reason the temple is central is because that's where the Lord is understood to dwell. So look at 1 Kings 8.31. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and so forth, verse 32, uh, if, if, he, if he comes and swears the oath before your altar, verse 32, then hear in heaven. Verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy, and then later in the verse, they, they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house. Verse 34, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. What's that sound like? They sinned. They got exiled. They repented. They're going to be restored. Verse 35, when heaven is shut up, this is the third scenario, when heaven is shut up and there's no rain, in the middle of, verse, of the verse there, verse 35, if they pray toward this place, verse 36, then here in heaven. Fourth scenario, verse 37, if there's famine in the land. And he goes on, uh, and, and if, they, if they know the affliction of their hearts in verse 38, verse 39, then here in heaven. Uh, verse 41, fifth scenario, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your great name's sake, Verse 43, and if they come and pray toward the temple, verse 43, here in heaven, 
your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. So Solomon's concern here is for all the peoples of the earth to know the name of the Lord. And that's going to happen through the ministry of the temple when the foreigners hear the greatness of Yahweh and come to the temple to pray there. And then God answers their prayer in order for the nations to know his name. This is what Solomon understands the program to be. And this is what the Old Testament presents as God's intention. Verse 44, this is the sixth scenario. If your people go out to battle against their enemy um, and they pray, verse 44, to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. Their cause. Verse 46 is the seventh scenario. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. What's that sound like? It sounds like we're in the land. We sin against God. We get exiled. Verse 47. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors. What's that sound like? It sounds like Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 31, where Moses says, when you enter the land, if you act corruptly, then the Lord will scatter you to all the nations under heaven. And, from, and there you will serve gods that your fathers have not known. But from there you will seek the Lord and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart. This is the paradigm that is informing what Solomon prays here. If they repent, verse 48, verse 49, then hear in heaven, verse 50, and forgive your people and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive. So, so this not only sounds like Deuteronomy 4, it also sounds like Daniel. And it also sounds like Nehemiah. This is exactly what Daniel and Nehemiah do, isn't it? They're over there in exile in Babylon, Daniel. And, and uh, Nehemiah is, is in exile and he's under the Persian, the Medo-Persian overlords. And both of them start praying and confessing the sins of the people. And in Daniel, it's explicit that he's praying toward Jerusalem. And the Lord hears in heaven and he grants compassion. He grants mercy to Daniel and Nehemiah in the sight of their captors. And then their captors do things that, that allow Israel to return to the land. In Daniel's case, Cyrus, the king that Daniel serves, decrees that the people can return to the land. In Nehemiah's case... Uh, the king that, that Nehemiah serves sends Nehemiah back to the land and, and funds Nehemiah's attempt to rebuild the walls, and they, they accomplish it. And, and Daniel and Nehemiah, they're just living out what, what Solomon is, is praying or prophesying here in his prayer. And then and then Solomon blesses the Lord at the end of this prayer. And, and, and look at his understanding of the way that God's presence in the temple is going to function for the sanctification of the people of Israel. Look at verse 57. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. This includes, it's not limited to, but it includes the way that God was with 
the fathers when he brought them out of Egypt and led them by excuse me, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Uh, and, and now Solomon is saying, just as the Lord led us by the pillar of fire and cloud, so also may the Lord dwell in this temple. That's, that's what's going on here in 1 Kings 8. The Lord has just taken up residence in the temple as the cloud has descended upon it. And then Solomon says in verse 57, may he not leave us or forsake us. That, verse 58, here's the purpose of God's presence with Israel in the temple. Notice that God is not described here as being within every individual member of the Old Testament remnant of Israel. Rather, God is in the temple and then the remnant is going to be inclined to God by means of God's indwelling the temple. So verse 58, may he not leave us or forsake us, verse 58, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded to our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. May he dwell in the temple, that he may incline our hearts. So from his dwelling place in the temple, the Lord is going to exercise an interior ministry on the hearts of the members of the remnant, the believers in Israel. And he's going to be inclining their hearts to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, statutes, and rules from his dwelling place in the temple. That seems to be Solomon's understanding of this. And this is what we see, this is exactly what we see in the Psalms. This is why the psalmists say things like, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. They're talking about those courts of the temple there in Jerusalem. This is why the, the psalmists say things like, how lovely are your gates, O Jerusalem. This is why Lamentations calls Jerusalem the beauty of all the earth. Jerusalem is significant not because it's like Hawaii and it's just glorious. It's really not. It's ugly. You know, I mean, Jerusalem is not that pretty a place. Jerusalem is significant and it's beautiful to the righteous because Yahweh dwells there. And it's beautiful to the righteous because Yahweh is worshipped there. That's why they're into Jerusalem. And, and the psalmists, they're not just into architecture when they say, you know, how lovely is your dwelling place, O God. No, that's not the point. The point is, that's where, God's, that's where God dwells. And that's where we find our meaning in life. This is what our lives are about. Our lives are about Yahweh's glory radiating out from that temple in Jerusalem. That's what informs these statements. And, and Solomon wants the Lord to do this so that, verse 60, all the peoples of the earth may know that Yahweh is God. There is no other. So from his dwelling place in the temple in Jerusalem, Yahweh is going to transform the hearts of the Israelites. And as a result of that, all the peoples of the earth will know that Yahweh is God and there is no other. And God's glory will cover the dry land as the waters cover the sea. Excuse me. So the narrative continues with Solomon's sacrifices and other things that Solomon has done. And, and in, in uh, 1 Kings 10, it appears to be working. The queen of Sheba comes from uh, where she lives. 
Sheba because she's heard of the fame of Solomon and she comes up to Jerusalem and she sees the glory of the Lord and she blesses the God of Israel. So this Gentile queen has come to Israel to bless Yahweh because of Solomon's wisdom and greatness. This is the Old Testament program. And then look at 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 24. The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put into his mind. I think that there's a, a sort of parallel between the way that, that um, we move through these narratives and we see Solomon's construction of the temple and the, the prayer there at the dedication of the temple and then it, it starts to work and, and the, the, the nations, the whole earth is, is being drawn to Jerusalem to, to see the glory of the Lord as it's, as it's exampled in the life of Solomon. And then we come to 1 Kings 11 where he sins grievously and sets the nation on the trajectory that leads to exile. I think there's an analogy there between that narrative and what we saw in 2 Samuel when after the promises to David, David begins to conquer in all directions and then he sins with Bathsheba and then things go south. After that, things go sour. So also, things are, are, are looking up. We're on an up, upward trajectory and then Solomon sins with these many wives and it's, it's all sad after that. So look at this narrative in 1 Kings chapter 11. It's just a terribly sad narrative. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into any, into marriage with, with them. There, there, the author of Kings explicitly quotes the law in condemnation of Solomon. You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And, and, and this is what happens. We read in verse 3, in other words, they turn his heart after way other gods. We're going to see that momentarily. Verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh, his God. And it's just amazing. Um, he, he commits idolatry, we read in these, in these successive verses. And so the Lord tells him in verse 11, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. And then we get a description of that servant uh, being raised up in, in the rest of chapter 11 as we, as we learn about this man, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And then Solomon dies. And again, I, I think that... Uh, Probably uh, Solomon repented, and I think we see that um, evidence of that in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam is a fool. And Rehoboam answers the people harshly, and as a result, they reject him. And, um, and, and, and uh, ten of the twelve tribes make Jeroboam king over them. Now look at what the prophet, this is significant, look at what the prophet of God had said to Jeroboam back in 1 Kings chapter 11 verses 37 and following. The prophet 
uh, said to Jeroboam that, that, he would, that he would give to Jeroboam these ten tribes. And then he says in verse 37, I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. Verse 38, if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. That's amazing. That's an astonishing promise made to this guy Jeroboam that the Lord is going to make him a house in Israel like David's in Judah. But then he says in verse 39, And I will afflict the house, the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. So, so Jeroboam's going to have a house established, but it's not going to last forever. Um, now, what, what eventually happens is Jeroboam doesn't walk in the statutes of the Lord and doesn't uh, keep the Lord's commandments, and so his house is not established. And what, what Jeroboam does once the ten tribes join him is recorded for us here in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25 and following. We read in verse 25, Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And then look down at verse 28. Uh, well, first we should read verse 27. Uh, let's start in verse 26. We'll just read the next verse. 1 Kings 12, 26, Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. In other words, he's afraid that he's going to lose his kingdom. He doesn't counter that fear with God's promise to him in the prophetic word. He counters that fear with a human strategy that is wicked and faithless and sinful. So verse 27, if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. You notice here that Jeroboam is so concerned about keeping his own kingdom that if it means keeping the people from Yahweh in order to keep his kingdom, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. That, that, the, the, narrator, the narrator of Kings doesn't condemn Jeroboam, Jeroboam explicitly. He doesn't, he doesn't have to. He just records what Jeroboam is, is, is saying, what's motivating him, and that is condemning. Jeroboam is so committed to his own kingdom that if it takes keeping the people from obeying the law of Moses and going to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, that's what he'll do to maintain his kingdom. So verse 28, the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. His kingdom is more important to him than the Ten Commandments. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. No, they haven't. Deuteronomy 12 calls them to go to the place that the Lord chooses to set his name. And then he says, behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I think this is an intentional uh, reminiscence of Exodus 34, 32 where Aaron made that calf and, and then said, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It's, it's an exact quote. That's what Jeroboam is, is doing. Verse 29, he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now, isn't that convenient? You've got one in the north, 
So the people who live up there, they don't have to travel too far. We'll just make this nice and easy for you. You got one in the south. So the, so the people in, in the south don't have to travel very far. I mean, after all, if we're, if we're coming up to a man-made, uh, self-conveniencing, self-protecting religion, let's make it easy on the people. We don't want to make it demanding on them. I mean, after all, we don't want them going back to Jerusalem to worship the true God. We want them taking it easy and worshiping the... The, the, the man-made religion. The, the next words are going to inform the rest of the narrative because the rest of First and Second Kings are going to talk about how wicked kings followed Jeroboam in the sin which he made Israel sin. This is the sin that Jeroboam made Israel to sin. He, he created this idolatrous, self-invented religion. So in First Kings 12, 30... This thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one, or, or to worship there. And, and verse 31, he also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. I mean, hey, if we're making it up as we go along, why bother with the need for these priests to be Levitical in, in their line of descent? I mean, if, if, there, if, there, if there are no... God, if there's no God who's, who's revealing himself, let's just do whatever we find to be convenient. Verse 32, Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. But it doesn't commemorate anything. It doesn't commemorate any mighty act of Yahweh saving his people. The Lord, God has feasts. Let's make our own feasts. So God's feasts have meaning and ours don't. Well, that, that, that's of little concern to us. The point is we're trying to keep people from worshiping Yahweh because we want them to do what we want them to do, not what God wants them to do. It's wickedness, satanic. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. Jeroboam has just invented this religion. And, and the narrative goes on here, and, and it, it just con condemns uh, Jeroboam. And, and what, we, what we see as the narrative proceeds, that um, we begin with a king in the north, Jeroboam, who has been uh, made king by a prophetic word. And as the narrative goes on, eventually kings arise in the north who, who are not authorized by the prophetic word to reign in the north. In fact, they just make themselves kings. They just, they just appoint themselves kings, and the way that they achieve their status as kings is by murdering their masters, uh, whatever it takes. Um, so, for instance, um, we see over in 1 Kings chapter 15... In um, verse 25, the descendant of Jeroboam, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign. Verse 26, he did what was evil. Then verse 27, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. That is, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam. And Baasha struck him down at Gibbethon. And then verse 28, so Baasha killed him. Verse 29, as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. And notice that here we have a new dynasty created in Israel, this guy Baasha. 
But there's no prophet telling Baasha that he's going to be king, and there's no anointing from the prophet, and there's, there's really no divine authorization of this whatsoever. It's just a man-made dynasty at this point. And at this point, Israel has become a people like the nations round about, the northern kingdom, that is. And, and, and once, once the law of God is no longer regulating their behavior, it's anything goes. It's, it's might makes right. It, it's whoever has the power and the strength to, to kill the person that, that, that's over them. Well, if, if that's what's regulating you, that's what you do. Um, and, and it becomes very Darwinian. It becomes um, uh, like the world, un unregulated by the law of God. Um, at, uh, what, what Baasha has done to the house of Jeroboam is done to his house. Look down at, at uh, 1 Kings chapter 16 in verse 8. Um, in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, became king over Israel and reigned two years in Tirzah. Now his servant, Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. Verse 10, Zim, Zimri went in and struck him and killed him. And then Zimri becomes king. Again, there's no prophet, there's no anointing, but there's a new dynasty. And, and, and Zimri kills all the house of Baasha. Well, uh, what, ha what, Zimri, what Baasha has done to Jeroboam and Zimri has done to Baasha, somebody else is going to come along and do that to Zimri. So this guy Omri comes along and, and they make Omri king over Israel down in verse 16. And then Omri actually... Uh, sets up a dynasty that's, that's awful. But, but before they do that, look at, at 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 21. The people of Israel, the northern kingdom, were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Genoth, to make him king, and half followed Omri. We've come a long way from living righteously under the Torah of, of Moses, the law of Yahweh, to, to, to show forth His glory, to subdue the nations round about, now the nation of Israel has descended into civil war. They, they've divided amongst themselves, and now one of the parts that's divided off is in civil war against itself. And, and, um, and it's just going to continue this way. It, it's, it's awful. Um, and, and, and the Lord mercifully raises up Elijah and Elisha, who in many ways um, are are uh, portentous in themselves. They're, they're, they're types of both John the Baptist and I think in some ways Jesus. They are, they are um, uh, typifying these, these future uh, figures who will do mighty things on behalf of God. And, and the narrative continues. And at the end of, um, of 1 Kings, this is where we are. The, the north is, is wicked and they're, and they're rebellious and they're apostate. And, and in the south, what we have is, is uh, fitful faithfulness. You have, you have these sort of um, attempts to move in a righteous direction mixed with uh, um, various kinds of alliances and, and uh, intrigues and... and, and uh, uh, treaties made with both the northern kingdom and, and other nations. Well, that's where we'll need, leave the, the narrative of 1 Kings, and we'll pick this up as, as the story continues to unfold in 2 Kings in the, in the next hour.